welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Rob Goodman, Assistant Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University and former congressional speechwriter. Rob Goodman is the author of Words on Fire, Eloquence and Its Conditions, which is out now from Cambridge University Press. So if you uh, like what we dish in this episode, go check it out. And Rob Goodman is here to discuss eloquence. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. So I feel like on elucidations, we're always talking these like old timey language. Like we had one where we talked about virtue and like who even ever uses the term virtue anymore? It sounds like we're in like the Victorian era. And it's a little bit like that with eloquence too. I feel like, you know, it's like a word you'd read in an old book. Um, Maybe just to start, what would you say eloquence is? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying about the kind of old-timey sound that the word has. And part of the thing that interested me in studying this topic is, you know, there's quite a bit of work on political rhetoric, on rhetoric and political theory, and on and on and on. But less than you'd think, I think, on questions of style, the way speech sounds, the way it kind of works as a, a, a holistically, the way that uh, style and content or, you know, what the Romans called uh, race and verba, uh, the thing and the word, work together. And I think this is all kind of part of eloquence. And I think maybe part of the reason it sounds old-fashioned is because there isn't a lot of conscious thought about uh, those qualities and how they fit together compared to what they used to be. So I guess for me, eloquence is just in a really simple minimalist definition. It's skilled speech. And I borrow that from Christopher Vandenberg, I think, who's a classicist who works on Tacitus. Skilled speech is speech that goes well. So that's just sort of the very basic minimal definition. And I think that, you know, the figures I write about in the book have come up with more complex ways to elaborate that and draw out that meaning. But I start from the basic there. But what I try to write about in the book is the idea that it's difficult to think about eloquence as just skilled speech or speech that goes well if you just look at the person speaking. Because one thing I try to stress is the way that rhetoric is embedded in relationships and eloquence goes and grows out of relationships. Rhetoric and eloquence come from the interplay between the speaker and the audience. So another way I try to look at eloquence in this book is by saying that it's sort of an emergent property. It doesn't come from the speaker or from the audience, but from the interplay of the speaker and the audience when there's sort of a healthy rhetorical relationship going on. And that the sign of this, the sign of that sort of underlying health is the aesthetic qualities that we perceive in the speech. So when we hear a particular instance of rhetoric that strikes us as having these qualities of eloquence, that it just, it seems like it goes well or it seems like it demonstrates skill or it seems like it demonstrates some kind of uh, formal aesthetic or stylistic quality that might uh, that we might even describe as beauty, uh, depending. Could, I think these things like, grow out of relationships. Is, is skilled speech the same thing as beautiful speech, or are those different? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, I think that beauty is kind of one aesthetic quality you could look for in speech. You know, one person I read about in the book is Burke, and Burke has a famous distinction between beauty and sublimity. Beauty is sort of like... Uh, it's comforting, it's less threatening, and sublimity has those other kind of qualities that are kind of threatening and a little bit scary. So I think there are lots of aesthetic qualities that speech can have that are the product of skill that might not be beautiful. You know, just as if you go to an art museum, some paintings might strike you as beautiful, some might be equally skilled and not strike you as beautiful, but still seem like good art for some other reason. So I, I think you could, I haven't thought about this really, you know, in a lot of depth, but I think you could kind of apply the same way of thinking to speech. Because like the, the case I was thinking of is like, imagine, you know, you're under a car that's sitting on a jack and I'm like telling you which parts to unscrew to fix it, hmm. maybe being skilled in that context is me clearly indicating which part you need to unscrew and how you need to do it to make the repair work rather than like me being really pretty in the way I say it. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess you could kind of talk about skill as related to the 
objective that you're trying to get across, like what, mm -hmm. what is kind of coming out of that situation. So in the situation that you're yeah. talking about, mm -hmm. the objective there is to direct me in an efficient manner as possible to the parts of the car to unscrew. Um, whereas, you know, kind of in traditional rhetoric, the objective is related to persuasion. But I do think yeah. there's still kind of an aesthetic quality there in the kind of close interrelationship of the form and the function. If you, there's something yeah, you yeah. want to accomplish and you do it really well, even if you're not giving the Gettysburg Address when you're under that car and you're hypothetical, but you're still, there's still a really interesting relationship between getting your point across in the most succinct, effective way. And I think some people could recognize that there's a certain quality in that that might strike our aesthetic senses in some way. Yeah, I can see that. You might put everything in such a perfectly apt way that it fulfilling the function of me clearly telling you exactly what you need to do is tied up in me picking the exact perfect way to phrase each instruction or something. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Okay, cool. I hadn't thought about that before. I... Um, but I could see the argument now that skilled speech and beautiful speech are more, more closely connected than you might have thought. Who would be an example of someone that maybe people have heard of now that like you would call eloquent? Oh, boy. Um, when a lot of people have asked me to kind of think of a, a recent example of political eloquence I thought went really well, I think about the March for Our Lives. These were sort of the, the, the uh, protests around uh, gun violence that came out of the Parkland shooting. Uh, and one of the speakers did something really interesting. I've talked about this a little bit before. Um, X Gonzalez, I think at the time they were using a different name. I think it was Emma at the time. But anyway, um, Gonzalez was someone who was in Parkland when the shooting happened. And uh, when they got up to speak, uh, there was something like a couple of minutes of absolute silence, of a pause in which it looked like they were just at a complete loss for words. Um, there was nothing that could be said about this. And as the clock ticked onwards and people started wondering if this is a case of stage fright, is this a case of losing your nerves, is this a case of being overwhelmed by the moment? And finally, it became clear that Gonzalez was looking at a watch and they said they had been silent for the amount of time that it took for the gunman to enter the school and commit the shooting and was using this kind of as an opportunity to both convey the, the magnitude of the moment and to kind of convey almost the short amount of time it would take to do that kind of irreparable damage but also how long it must have seemed in the actual moment itself. So what I thought was really interesting about this was a couple of things. One, it's using kind of the form of the speech, the form of political rhetoric to kind of like mimetically to convey something about the thing that it's trying to express in a really unique and innovative way in which waiting for someone to speak becomes kind of analogous to wading through this horrible life-changing situation. I don't want to aestheticize this and say that it's somehow beautiful to convey the horror of being in a school shooting. But I think that one thing that we admire in political rhetoric generally is being able to use language or the absence of language in this case in new, uh, creative, innovative ways to capture things about the world and to capture not just their semantic content like a shooting happened, but to capture their emotional content, to capture the effect and the affect of living through them. So I think that was remarkable. And I think the other thing that's remarkable is something that, that I talk about a lot in the book is this idea about the relationship between eloquence and risk, the idea that it's really the most memorable pieces of eloquence, the most memorable pieces of rhetoric come out of uh, speakers who risk something, speakers who risk things going very badly and falling on their faces as it were, who kind of walk right up to the edge of an embarrassment or failure or a shame and doing something that kind of invites that risk. I couldn't think of a clearer example in recent rhetoric than taking the risk of the audience getting the impression that you've just utterly lost your nerve and then showing them why you haven't, how this is very calculated and deliberate. So I didn't write about this in the book because it's not really in the scope of what I'm talking about. Mm. But when I think about 
an example of political speech that brings together a lot of things I'm talking about, I think it's this. And the, the, the other interesting thing is that it doesn't come from sort of the center of our political system because I think there are lots of ways that I talk about in the book in which the center of our political system is not very amenable to eloquence right now, but it comes from an activist. It comes from the margins. It comes from someone who's something of a political outsider. And I think that's telling as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it's really interesting to me when like somebody stumbling in the middle of talking, that can paradoxically, if it's done strategically in the right time, can come across as itself eloquent, even when in ordinary context, it would seem you know, the opposite of being eloquent. That's kind of amazing to me. And I feel like this is a more general phenomenon in art where you take something that ordinarily would be ugly in its ordinary context, but just by like recontextualizing it a little bit, you can somehow make it beautiful or make it appear beautiful in the moment or something like that. And I feel like I come across this a lot actually on the Illustrations podcast. Hmm. So I have a, like a wide variety of guests on. Some of them are really shy. They've never come on a podcast before. Some of them are total media divas. They're like, you stick a microphone in front of them and they're like, let's go. I want to perform. <laughs> and I've noticed that the people who are really comfortable speaking on a podcast, part of what makes them come across that way is they're confident precisely about those moments when they don't know what to say. Mm. They'll like stumble confidently. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll start a sentence, deep six the sentence in the middle of it, start again, but the vibe they'll convey will be like, that's what was supposed to happen. I was supposed to start that sentence <laughs> and then start this new one and then, you know, and I'll swallow. I'll be like, yeah, of course, that was what they intended. So there's something very hard to kind of theoretically pin down about like what aesthetic beauty is in general because it can have this paradoxical feature where, you know, non-beauty can be beauty sometimes. And I feel like eloquence, kind of what we're getting at here is like the speech version of that. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a really good point. I also think that there's something about the culture of academia that does kind of militate against that, just the idea that it's so important, especially I think when you're coming up and when you're a relatively junior person like me, you have to project this sort of air of, of knowingness and knowledge and there's not a single thing that you're not aware of in your yeah, field. And yeah, you, you, You've you read never, everything that's Oh, there's a famous, but have, you know. do you know so-and-so book? And you say like, Oh, of course. But I don't really, I, it's been a while. Can you remind me? Like you never say you never say you haven't read anything. So no, of course, I've read everything. Right, but you do get to a certain level of confidence where you are able to project that kind of um, the construction of the thing in the moment. And I, I, yeah, I think C.S. Lewis was one of my just like formative books when reading literary criticism was C.S. Lewis wrote the book Preface to Paradise Lost, which I love and is sort of a formative idea. I think I cited a couple of times in this book too, but he talks about the sources that Milton is citing to kind of inform the canon that he's trying to contribute his thing to. And he says like, you know, when you're John Milton, you're trying to write the great English epic, things that you reference can't just be the things you happen to read that day. You have to be very deliberate about what you were picking out as like, these are the ones that matter because they are the canon that I'm adding myself to. And I'm making them canon by citing them in my book. So it's kind of a, it's like a reciprocal sort of process. <laughs> but this, this idea of putting yourself into a tradition in the course of constructing it, like this is a whole really deliberate act that's sort of going on behind the scenes in what Milton's doing. And that just – that was okay. really interesting to me about how influence isn't just the kind of stuff that happened to be in your head when you wrote it. Influence is like it's always a really deliberate thing if you're on that level, I think. That's really interesting, yeah. So if I want to be spoken of in the same breath as – I don't know, whoever, you know, Ira Glass and Sarah Koenig. I guess I need to talk about Ira Glass and Sarah Koenig a lot. Whereas if I, you know, reference other things, maybe some like people who are popular on YouTube now, then I'm more likely to, to later be spoken of in the same breath as those YouTubers. Yeah, I think that's fair because, you know, people um, oftentimes take the clues that you yourself leave. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe let's cycle back to this interesting idea you mentioned a few minutes ago that in your opinion, being eloquent isn't just a matter of what 
the person speaking is doing, but it's a matter of like the encounter between the speaker and the addressee. Uh, it takes two to tango, and like the two tangoing is what creates the eloquence. So to go back to your example of X Gonzalez uh, relating the events of the Parkland shooting, would an example of your view applied to that be X Gonzalez speaking to their friends exhibits one kind of eloquence and has one kind of style, whereas X Gonzalez being interviewed on CNN would have a very different uh, verbal style uh, that arose of the interaction between the live audience, the host, and them, as opposed to in, like in a friend group. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. You know, I think in a very broad perspective, any kind of communication that sort of has a goal, any kind of persuasive goal, you could talk about that as rhetoric. And there are, you know, scholars of rhetoric who talk about rhetoric as sort of a dominant kind of master trope for all sorts of language because all language is, you know, directed towards an end. And I get that and I think that's one way of looking at it. But in kind of the more specific, narrower sort of political rhetoric way that I'm looking at specifically in this book, I'm talking about it that is specifically um, in front of an audience in some kind of formal stylized setting in which you expect speech is going to sound different. So I, I think it's meaningful that generally the kind of speech that works uh, in a small group, um, in a conversation, this sort of conversation, isn't that analogous to the speech that works in front of an audience and vice versa. And I think you know one of the cues is that when you use the wrong sort of speech in the wrong kind of context, it's uncomfortable, it's laughable, there's something about it that gives you a social cue that this is not usually how things are done. So I think people sort of intuitively understand, you know, different registers appropriate for different situations. And, and one of the things that's part of, I think, the classical theory of eloquence is the idea that a complete and full orator is someone who can use all the available registers in any given situation who is just utterly adaptable. So is it a good thing or is it a bad thing to be a great speaker? Um, <laughs> I feel like people often argue this both ways. Mm -hmm. One point of view on it, and this is one that probably comes from Plato. One point of view on it is it's a little shifty to be a great speaker because you're not persuading people just by showing them evidence. You're persuading people with like your personal charisma mm -hmm. and kind of getting under their skin, knowing what their soft spot touchy issues are and, you know, in a way speaking to those. So was that right? I mean, is uh, is being a great speaker actually part of like, you know, you're kind of like a snake oil salesman? <laughs> you, you certainly can be. You know, I think it's dangerous to sort of make blanket statements about whether eloquence or rhetoric are uh, good things or bad things. It can be used for good purposes or evil purposes. I think that's sort of the sort of classic response to that critique is the idea that uh, it's a tool like any tool that can be used for good or for bad. A hammer can be used to hammer in a nail or to bash in someone's head. But I, I do think that the elements that you kind of talk about are identified with the idea of being a snake oil salesman, you know, things like trading on your personal credibility or charisma or things like playing on the audience's emotions. You know, those things can be destructive for good deliberation and for kind of reasonable and ethical persuasion or they can be constructive. And, you know, everything goes back to Aristotle in lots of ways, but Aristotle talks a lot about the ways in which, um, you know, the elements you talk about, pathos and ethos emotion and the credibility of the speaker can be conducive to a good deliberation, can help people think and engage their judgment or the ways that can be destructive. But I think, you know, to kind of counter the point that appealing to things that are kind of beside the point, besides the argument, besides the, the logos are all kind of distractions. I think these things can matter because when we're dealing in rhetoric, we're dealing in arguments that are plausible, that could go either way. And it's difficult to have 
utter certainty whenever anyone's trying to persuade you of something. So I think the, the character that the speaker wants to present in that situation does matter because they're suggesting don't just believe a particular argument, believe that I'm the kind of person with the sort of goodwill towards you and reasonableness that have thought it out, kind of put some trust not just in the results of my reasoning process but in the kind of person that has reasoned this out. You know, similarly with appeal to the emotions, sometimes appeals to emotions are irrelevant or destructive or can carry people away against their better judgment. Other times they make real connections with the sorts of things uh, that people rightly value. And I don't think there's a blanket statement about when these appeals are helpful or hurtful. This is one of the things I think is so challenging in the political theory of rhetoric is these exact things that are useful in some contexts are, are destructive and hurtful in other contexts. And it's very hard to lay down a blanket rule about when it's one and when it's the other. Yeah, I certainly find that very sympathetic, especially as a teacher, if I'm trying to convey some general abstract point to students, the only way to do that is to pick some illustrative examples where the examples do in fact illustrate the general point. And in, in order to do that, you have to pick an example that's going to speak to the people you're talking to. So just for the purpose of getting people to understand what you're saying, sometimes it is necessary to tap into where they're coming from. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. And I think one of the reasons that I'm trying to kind of shift the conversation in my book from looking at the content of of what people say when they're engaging in rhetoric to the structure of rhetorical relationships is because I kind of think the former is a bit of a dead end to kind of say things categorically about when a speech manipulative, when a speech pandering, when a speech like actually persuasive and engages people's deliberative faculties. And I think these are good questions. They're important questions. Like I'm sure they exist in theory, but I have a lot of trouble coming up with some way of specifying what's what. I think a lot of people do. I, I teach rhetoric to upper level of master students as well. And I, I had them do an assignment when I talk about an example of rhetoric and talk about whether they consider it um, an example of persuasive speech or maybe more manipulative speech and what the difference is. And they're smart upper level students, but I think everyone kind of struggles with this. And maybe it's my fault for asking a bad question because I struggle with it too. It's really hard to say a lot in general about why this is manipulative, why that isn't, other than just this sense of I don't like it or I don't like the ends for which it's been directed. And I think there are substantive ways to talk about manipulation. Like for instance, the idea that there's a sense in which you can kind of superficially sign on to something without having your rational faculties be involved in it somehow. It's something some kind of a persuasion that you don't really assent to, that on better judgment, you'd change your mind later on, but you're carried away. And that's possible. But I kind of think that it might be more productive to look for a while as a discipline at relationships and what we can say about connections between speakers and audiences and the emergent properties of those. And I'm not going to claim that this isn't going to be a dead end either, but I think that there could be more interesting work done in that direction rather than sort of looking at the speech content and coming up with rules and guidelines for content. Hmm. So I can't resist asking, since you used to be a professional political speech writer, aren't there situations when as a speech writer, you have to write a speech without knowing in advance who it's going to be given to? And it's like, how do you juggle that? Do you have to sort of guess who the audience is going to be and modulate the style and organization of the piece that way? No, no. Most of the time in my experience, when there's a speech, it also comes with a particular occasion. Like we're speaking, uh -huh, to the, okay. we're speaking to the American Health Association. We're speaking to APAC. We're speaking on the floor of Congress. We're speaking to uh, used car salesmen. Like whatever it is, it kind of comes with a package. And I think there are parts of that writing process that are kind of geared towards acknowledging the group. I, I had a kind of a mentor in the profession tell me one time that when you're speaking to a group, uh, do like a little research on their history and tell them something they might not know about themselves. You know, tell them about uh, 
the person that founded a university you're speaking at or tell them about an important piece of legislation that this lobbying group was involved in, whatever it is. And I think- Those are great examples, yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a bit of flattery involved in that, that someone's gone to the trouble of looking it up. But it is also this idea that at least the ideal that you're, you're gesturing towards is I'm engaging with you not as an interchangeable group of people. I'm engaging with you as particular individual people who have a particular situation. No, that's good. You send the message that you went to the trouble of thinking about who you're talking to when you wrote the thing. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's done more or less superficially. And I, I don't claim that I've nailed it every time. But I think that's the idea. And but I it think could be sincere. It could be. It could be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the topics you're particularly interested in in this book is the kinds of risks that a speaker and an addressee may or may not take in the course of a conversation. So maybe we could just talk about some of those. Like, what are some of the risks you face as a speaker? What are some of the risks you face as the person being addressed and so forth? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think it's like kind of a central part of my argument in the book is that one of the issues with rhetoric in general and that makes it different from conversation is that it's asymmetrical. Um, you have few people speaking and many people listening and that's just the nature of it for the most part. So you're thinking in the context of like a public speech, public speech or something yeah. on the radio or something on TV yeah. or on YouTube. Okay. Yeah, public political rhetoric. And it's got this asymmetry built into it, which might not be a problem, but from a perspective of political equality might be a problem. You have to think about it. That's right. Like you're not going to talk back to the speaker unless maybe somebody shouts from the audience and they can kind of hear. But like there's, it's really not a two-way thing. Right. It's not dialogic. Although, yeah. it, you know, it, that's sort of the ideal. It's very far from that in reality. Um, and Simone Chambers, uh, who I cite in the book, has written some good stuff about this that influenced me a lot. But anyway, the idea that I think comes out of classical rhetoric that helps us deal with this problem is the idea of risk in the rhetorical situation, the idea that speakers have risks and audiences have risks. And when they both take on their kind of burden of risk or vulnerability in that situation, it levels the playing field a little bit. It means that they're kind of both have skin in the game and participating in a common activity rather than the speaker uh, dominating the audience by imposing his or her views. So I think the risks that speakers and audiences take on are different um, because they occupy different positions. I think the speaker's risk has to do with the risk of it going badly, of speaking badly, of being humiliated, of being rejected by the audience. Of, like of making visibly, mistakes, sounding yeah, stupid. Yeah, of, of yeah. visibly publicly losing face, which, you know, especially for people who make their careers as public figures is a big deal. And for the audience, I think the risk has to do with the risk of listening to something that might change your mind which is difficult. Changing your mind, uh, rearranging your beliefs, changing the story you kind of tell about yourself and how you fit into the world is hard. And most people find lots of good ways not to do it. So like so if somebody convinces you that the company you work for is totally evil and they're doing something really horrible, maybe that might yeah. make you think, I got to quit and now I got to find a new job. And oh yeah. man, this is a real pain now. <laughs> yeah. You'd have to change your life. Um, it's a big deal. And like most things, you know, if someone convinced you that eating meat was immoral. You'd have to change your diet. That's a huge change. If someone convinced you uh, to adopt a new religion, if someone convinced you to change your partisan identity, all these sorts of things can be dangerous. And I think kind of most people, uh, we, we tend to go through our days. I'm not sure I'm making a blanket statement to sort of avoid that encounter. But I guess what I want to suggest is there are situations in which the speaker's willingness to accept risk, to put him herself or herself out there in a way that could go badly encourages, at least potentially, members of the audience to kind of make a reciprocal gesture. And when both of these gestures get made at the same time, you have something that's kind of real. I think that's sort of the kairos, the Greek word for the particular moment in which something interesting can happen. I feel like the extreme example of this that comes to mind is like stand-up comedy, where there's a standard practice of the audience like harassing and making fun of the person on stage, uh -huh. and they're in the hot seat at that point to have a witty comeback. It's almost like that's like... 
probably politicians experience some version of this, but I feel like a comedian is sort of the extreme because part of the conceit of stand-up comedy as it exists now is that they're up there to be like kind of tested. Yeah. No, I think that that's really interesting. I think there's a lot of and, – and of course the other way around as well. That's a really interesting case because I guess it kind of suggests that there might be some kind of hunger to experience this kind of – these moments of unpredictability, these moments of real exactly. kind of risk, yeah. vulnerability, um, you know, sort of the opposite of what Daniel Borston called the pseudo-event, like an actual event. And if we can't get it in politics because you think about the kind of texts that come down to us from ancient speeches and people kind of getting heckled and kind of hounded off the platform and unable to finish what they're saying because they put a foot wrong, that's the same kind of thing with real stakes. And if we can't get it with real stakes, at least we can kind of get it with pseudo stakes as a form of entertainment. I feel like with politicians, there's this further dimension too, where, you know, in order to get enough votes, they have to please everybody. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they have to like not really commit to anything because if they commit to anything, then they're going to lose some of their votes who, you know, of the people who didn't want them to say that. Yeah. So there's a further dance too. In addition to not wanting to just like make an ass of yourself, there's also like, even if you believe X, you might not want to be on record saying X because then you lose these votes. Yeah. And I think there's the also additional dimension too, that as a politician, you can pretty much pick your audience. You can speak to a targeted group who is certainly going to agree with you. And I, I, when I talk about Trump, I think that's just one of the more striking things about Trump a, as a rhetorician and an orator. Um, yeah. Is Trump yeah. eloquent? This is an interesting well, question yeah, to me. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. I, I think well, first thing I'll say is I think one part of the thing that kind of detracts from the riskiness of the situations he puts himself in is he, you know, even more than I think most public figures, goes to extreme lengths to make sure that if you're there, you're going to agree with them. You know, he, if you heckle, if you disagree, if you have a sign, you will, you know, physically be beaten up. And that happened enough times that it was kind of a deterrent for being in his face and not agreeing. Especially during the campaign, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Primary campaign. Yeah. But I, so I think that there's, that's part of it. So is he? Um, I think he's a lot like stand-up comedy in the sense that not just that he has this kind of sporadic sense of humor, but in the sense that it's just, it's sort of a, a cheap form that kind of shows people's hunger for real engagement, real riskiness. Um, I think yeah. this idea that Trump has this kind of spontaneity to him, that he could supposedly say anything, he could supposedly really put his foot in his mouth, he could supposedly uh, just go utterly off script. Well, I think that's part of what is really appealing about his speaking style to his fans is that that thing I just mentioned yeah. where politicians are kind of like in uh, handcuffs about what they get to say. Oh, I know I think X, but I can't say it because then I'm going to lose these votes. Part of what really speaks to Trump's fans, I think, is the way that he's able to give the sense that he doesn't care. He's going to say whatever he thinks. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't like it, that's tough. But uh, he's not going to hold back at all. Yeah, I know. I think that's right on. Um, I guess the only thing I'd add to that is he certainly gives that sense. I think at some degree it's a little bit fake because of the ways I said. Right, right. Not for, taking yeah. any position on how, oh, no, no, how no. much he actually yeah. – No, for sure. <laughs> but, no, but, I guess, but I think it's the way in which he can control his audience and kind of speak in this media ecosystem in which you just – you physically can't contradict him without being kind of fake news, which kind of takes a lot of the riskiness out of it. You know, one thing I, I compared to stand-up comedy, another thing I compared it to in the book – is a roller coaster in which you kind of give the sensation of danger, but you actually have a safety bar in place to prevent you from experiencing actual danger. And I think that there's something of a roller coaster quality in that respect to Trump's rhetoric too. Whereas real, real eloquence does sort of involve the you know the roller coaster without the safety bar. Hmm. So, what are some of the ways that you've observed politicians trying to insulate themselves from the risk of getting up and speaking? Well, I think politicians have always wanted to do this, and I don't want to suggest that. Uh, things used to be great back then and they're miserable now because I think that's sort of an ahistorical perspective. But I do think the means available for avoiding risk have changed. So I talk in the book about what Mark Thompson, who worked for the BBC, the New York Times, calls rhetoric as algorithm. 
uh, the idea about using um, political technology to make messages and their impact as predictable as possible. So this can range from, you know, on a simple level asking a focus group of certain message works. I read recently about the way that, um, you know, Bill Clinton tested his 1996 uh, campaign slogan when he was running for president uh, for re-election. I think some of the options that were tested were building a bridge to a second term, which no one liked, uh, building a bridge to the year 2000, which was a little bit more popular, and building a bridge to the 21st century, which got big thumbs up, which of course became the slogan. And this is not just Bill Clinton, like everyone does this, and this is a yeah. simple example. But it gets more sophisticated. It gets to the level of, um, you know, the ways that political campaigns can track uh, voters' preferences for micro-targeting using their credit card statements and using the magazines they subscribe to and the products they buy to the use of uh, A-B testing on uh, candidates' websites and social media in which different audiences get different messages or images and you can then track which ones raise more money, which is something the Obama campaign did. You can even physically track uh, users' physical locations if they've downloaded your campaign app, which is something the Trump campaign did. I think even the Biden campaign as well um, interlinks... Uh, users of the app with contacts on your social media to kind of build a network of people who are potential supporters. You know, of course, there's a Cambridge Analytica scandal, which had to do with scraping data from users' uh, social media profiles. So not all these techniques always work. And of course, you know, I, I think a lot of times the idea that political technology is going to turn us into kind of robots or sheep is overblown. Mm. But the thing that really strikes me is the idea that a lot of time and effort and money are spent by our political class in trying to develop techniques like this to make speech maximally predictable, to make speech minimally risky, to you know, enable a speaker to speak from a position of concealment in which the message is as likely to be received favorably as possible before it's even said. There is something a little bit big brother about it, isn't there? Like I can't gather data on like Obama's campaign team or Biden's campaign team or Trump's campaign team, even if they're going to gather data on me. Yeah, exactly. I think it's this idea that a lot of political technology as it kind of shapes our lives we take for granted resembles surveillance in lots of ways. And it's not just sort of the privacy compromising aspects because maybe that's a problem, maybe it's not. But I think it's the idea that the person who has surveillance power gets to see you without revealing something of themselves. And of course, yes. gets to see a lot of people from the position of kind of one kind of secure it's position. It's kind of voyeurism, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the idea is that um, – when you integrate these kind of techniques of surveillance capitalism with political rhetoric, you get the possibility of messages that don't always work, but you get you know, sort of the aspiration on the part of the political class to make political life and political speech maximally safe for them while still asking us as citizens and listeners to take up the burden of having our views potentially changed. And that's where I think the kind of asymmetry comes back in. I think that's sort of the baseline inequity of the situation. Um, so I think there's a lot of technological change that makes the risk shift in rhetoric easier. But I also think there's conceptual change. Um, the idea of the orator as a political role, as a political office, as something that kind of is one of the politicians' kind of main qualifications for public life, that concept is in many ways sort of in disrepair and disuse. So I think that there's some kind of conceptual reasons in the idea of the orator that keeps potentially public figures from using all the techniques they could possibly use. The idea that I could do all this stuff and the uh, resources are available to me, but it would somehow be a denigration of my function as an orator to do these things. So maybe I'm going to refrain. And that's what I kind of try to reconstruct from the classical tradition, this idea of reasons not to use the tools that are available to you. Hmm. 
aren't all the techniques that you've been describing basically just like the data science version of what you said you used to do as a speechwriter, which is try to find out background on the people that the speech is for before writing the speech? Yeah, no, that's a fair question. And what I want to say is like these techniques have been around forever. Of course, speakers have always wanted to learn about audiences. Of course, they've always wanted to take every precaution they can to make sure um, what they say goes over well. I guess one distinction is kind of a difference of degree, that it's a lot easier to do those without risking yourself than it used to be. But I think the other distinction is that what I find in the classical tradition is an awareness that there are tools you can use to know your audience in sort of an unfair way, that there are rhetorical handbooks that go around in Cicero's time and before that tell you all sorts of magical words and techniques to use to get audience acquiescence. You know, Whether they work or not, they still kind of express the same aspiration that we have in the present. I think the difference is what I find in this Ciceronian tradition is a reason to not use these techniques, uh, to not use them because the kind of knowing that gets valorized in this tradition is the kind of knowing that you have to do at a kind of cost to yourself. The only way from Cicero's perspective to know whether something works is to try it and to see if it works. So sure, you can research your audience, you can learn about them in the attempt to kind of persuade them. But there's, I think, a bit more of willingness to be exposed to the possibility of it going badly. Uh, the, the only way to know if your knowledge of the audience is correct is to try something and see what happens. The kind of algorithmic rhetoric that I've tried to describe in the book um, minimizes that kind of try it and find out dimension. It's find out and then try it in a sense. So it seems like the idea here is that politicians, you know, need to be a bit less chicken. Or maybe if we don't want to put the burden on them specifically, it's like maybe what we want is a system in which the incentives are in favor of politicians being a bit less chicken, taking a little more risk, not taking this easy way out of, you know, doing a bunch of data mining, uh, but just, you know, putting yourself out there and trying to learn something about who you're talking to in the moment. Um, and, you know, in that way, you invite yourself to potentially be more persuasive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when, when you talk about it, I think your kind of latter way of phrasing that was a better way of phrasing it is this idea that it's not just we need politicians to kind of develop virtues of courage and risk acceptance and bravery, although that would be nice. And there, I think there is a characterological development. And I don't know how to wave a magic wand and make that everybody's yeah. psychology just change. Right. But there is there is sort of a civic virtue element to it. But the other element is is that these are the kinds of things that people have to demand. So when you think about the sort of how classical rhetoric developed, it developed out of intense periods of contestation and tumult between the masses and the elite, between the kind of Machiavellian situation of the great and the people struggling for political power. That, that was the context in Republican Rome. It was the context in Democratic Athens. And I think that there's a reason that great eloquence comes out of these periods because they're periods in which rhetoric is really a site of contestation and not a site of uh, attempted domination. Rob Goodman, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to really put myself out there in this interview. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me again. I, I really appreciate it. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>